You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. Be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash missionlog to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 477, Basics, parts 1 and 2. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at an episode or two of Star Trek to discuss the morals, meanings, and messages and see if it stands the test of time. This week, we say goodbye to Season 2 of Voyager with Basics Part 1. The one where you fool Janeway once, shame on her. Fool her twice, and it's probably yet another plot by Seska. And then we say hello to season three of Voyager with Basics Part Two, the one where even a little lava can't come between friends. John will be back with trivia in a moment, right after I tell all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Rod and Bear YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with a lot of trivia. I, I tried try to keep it pretty slim, actually, for this two-parter, because that's actually one of the more interesting things about this episode. So we have a two-part episode written by Michael Piller. He gets the sole credit here, but we'll discuss that more in a moment. And uh, both parts directed by Vinrick Colby. We're about midway through Rick's tenure on Voyager, and the last episode of his that we discussed was in the middle of season two with Resistance. We will catch him again, though, through the remaining seasons. And, of course, he was simultaneously directing on DS9 during this time. And, you know, we haven't mentioned it before, really, but it was also in these early seasons that Rick was dating Kate Mulgrew for a time. And now here's the kind of weird uh, production stuff that was going on behind the scenes with this these two episodes, actually. And this was a real rarity for Star Trek and, honestly, for TV in general at this time, that you've got a season-ending cliffhanger, two-parter, written and directed by the same team. But this one was special, again, for a few other reasons. Primarily, it was Michael Piller's last episode as an executive producer on Voyager. He would stick around as a consultant, but after this point, he was no longer a day-to-day influence on the show. He wanted to leave it with a bang, and he got most of the credit for this arc. Uh, Now, that's not to say that it was all his. Jerry Taylor, Rick Berman, and Ken Biller, among others, all had their influence. And, in fact, there are a couple of major plot points that changed because of them. We will get into that later. Another interesting point about production 
We all know that TV shows aren't always shot in the order of release, and we also know that season cliffhangers are usually filmed separately with a conclusion rolling after the summer hiatus. This is a two-parter that is even more mixed up in scheduling. Part one was shot, then three other episodes intended for season three were shot, then at the end of season two, the conclusion of Basics wrapped. That was in April of 1996 with the intention of airing in September of that year. So the two episodes weren't filmed concurrently, but they were all squeezed into the end of season two, just separated by three additional episodes. Wild. We do have some uh, location shooting here, Lone Pine, California, in the Alabama Hills. Shout out to my home state. Augmented quite a bit with some mats to make the terrain look even more dangerous with lava flows, etc. And let's meet our guest stars. We have so many returning guests. Back in one of Chakotay's visions is his father, Kolopak, played again by Henry Darrow. And of course, we welcome back Martha Hackett and Anthony Delongis as Seska and Majkala, respectively. John Geegan Huber, who we saw last as Giles Surratt in two previous episodes, returns here. But as Tirana, Simon Billig is back as Hogan, and Nancy Hauer is back as Samantha Wildman. And finally, we get to welcome back the exceptional Brad Dorff as Lon Suter in his final two appearances in the role. As a computer, I would of course prefer machine language to basic. Perhaps this story is too epic to be translated into machine language. Let's find out. Prologue. Our old friend and Voyager's resident serial killer, Lon Suter, is still confined in his quarters, making use of his time with a newfound passion for floriculture, likely brought on by his meld with Tuvok. Among the other positive benefits of that therapy, he also confides in the Vulcan that he really wants to contribute to the crew of Voyager somehow, maybe in aeroponics? Tuvok will check it out. Meanwhile, a message comes in for Chakotay. It's Seska, holding her and the commander's baby, issuing an urgent plea for help as Majkala threatens her and her child. Act 1. Is this a trap? It's probably a trap, right? Still, Janeway and Chakotay debate the risks if he decides he needs to help, and the crew will be right behind him. To get a little extra perspective, Chakotay takes a vision quest in which he confers with the spirit of his father, and yeah, the father of the child says, you need to be a father to your child. Whether Chakotay is willing to accept him or not, that child is his, and he is a child of their people. So Voyager sets a course to rendezvous with Seska, but only after devising some tactical advantages like decoy holographic ships to throw off the Kazon and a little backup from the Talaxians if they need it. In short order, Voyager intercepts a damaged Kazon shuttle with a badly hurt pilot. He's beamed aboard to sickbay and in his weakened state tells Chakotay that Seska is dead. Act 2 Herna, the Kazon, says that Majkala ordered Seska's throat to be cut after he found out that she had sent a message about the baby. Tirna himself escaped only by bribing a guard, but Kala attacked his shuttle as he escaped. The baby was taken to the colony at Jima 4 to be raised as a servant. Chakotay, of course, wants to pursue with Tirna's unwilling help. 
this is still probably a trap, right? The EMH can offer no help in the way of a lie detector. He can only say that Tierno was legitimately hurt from the shuttle, and he has a very high red blood cell count. Bellana can confirm the shuttle was attacked by Kazon weapons. Tierna goes one better in trying to allay their suspicions by giving the Voyager crew a tactical look at Kala's defense net through their route. It's still dangerous, but they'll carry on. Sure enough, there's a minor attack only moments into the journey. Not bad enough to maintain a red alert, though, and that allows some time for Janeway and Tuvok to visit Suter. In his quarters, Suter is nervous but excited to make his request to the captain for supplies. He intends to turn his quarters into an aeroponics lab, and she says she'll consider it. Suter's desperation to do something for the crew of Voyager, anything, betrays him, though, and his outburst toward the captain makes them all uneasy. Act 3. Minor but frequent Kazon attacks continue, all aiming for Voyager's starboard ventral. Is it coincidence or coordinated? Each minor attack from seemingly unaffiliated Kazon starts to add up with compounding damage. And does Tirna know anything about this? Chakotay confronts him in sickbay, but Tirna isn't forthcoming with anything other than mocking him for losing his cool. Are we sure this isn't some kind of trap? Tirna is confined to quarters until the bridge crew can make sense of it. Right next door to Tierna is Suter, who's visited by Neelix with some dinner. The red alert comes back, though, and Neelix ducks out, leaving Suter in the dark, literally and figuratively. On the bridge, situation grows more tense when eight large Kazon ships come into range in a Cardassian formation and seemingly baiting Voyager with an obvious escape route. Battle stations are called as Voyager heads right toward them. Act 4. Voyager deploys its hologram fleet, which breaks up and distracts the Kazon formation. Then the firefight begins, with more enemy vessels closing in on Voyager and the holoships, even at one point catching the EMH in the crossfire when he is accidentally projected along with the other holograms. While Voyager gets in a few good shots, even taking out one of the Kazon ships, there's trouble brewing inside on Deck 8. In his quarters, Tierna removes a toenail, revealing a tiny needle. It's a detonator. When injected into his bloodstream, turns his whole body into a bomb. His body morphs and expands, and then blows up real good, leaving a gaping hole through his room into suitors and taking out a main plasma conduit at the same time. You see, the whole thing was a trap. The hologrid is out, Voyager is on fire in many places, and the Kazon concentrate their attack. As a last ditch, Tom Paris escapes in a shuttle to try to meet up with those friendly Talaxians, hoping to mount a rescue. Voyager is hobbled and now being boarded by Kazon soldiers. Captain Janeway can't even pull her favorite maneuver, a self-destruct order, because ship systems are damaged so badly. The invaders make their way to the bridge, holding the crew at gunpoint. Act 5 Maj Kala enters, along with Seska holding her baby. Chakotay gets off a few choice words, and Kala announces that he's raising the child as his own. Apparently, Seska had convinced him that the pregnancy occurred while she was under Chakotay's command, and it was forced upon her. A convenient lie that stuns Chakotay. Janeway, after literally being slapped down by Kala, asked him to spare the lives of her crew— they were following her orders. But Kulla has a different plan. 
He's going to strand the entire Voyager crew on a planet in the Henan system. Everyone is corralled into a cargo bay, except two. There's a missing shuttle, and there was that room next to Tierna's. There's a third they also don't know about if you count the EMH. He has deactivated himself with a 12-hour recall. When Voyager arrives at Henan 4, Kahlo's crew lands the vessel and evacuates all of the original crew to the surface, stripping them of all their technology, comm badges included. That puts Janeway and the others in survival mode on this arid, rocky world, similar to a several-million-year-old Earth, while the Kazon-controlled Voyager lifts off. Basics Part 2 Prologue. Survival for the stranded crew means exploring Hanon 4 to find useful resources, water, shelter, weapons. That leads Ensign Hogan to a cave entrance where he is promptly killed by a fast-moving unseen creature far bigger than he. Act 1. Tom Paris is doing his best to evade Kazon on his way to get help. The stranded Voyager crew are doing their best to survive, which means eating grubs, making weapons, and staying away from whatever the hell killed Hogan. Meanwhile, on Voyager, Seska visits sickbay for a checkup on her baby, and the EMH plays it pretty coy about the change in command and how he can't lie about his loyalties, wink, wink. He also drops a bomb that the baby isn't Chakotay's. Much to Seska's surprise, he is indeed half Cardassian, half Kazon, so she's got some splaining to do. When she leaves, the doctor quickly weighs his options to undo the Kazon takeover, and he is surprised to learn from the computer that there is a crewman still on board, Lon Suter, who's been hiding in the Jeffries tubes and now makes his way to sickbay. Things aren't great on Hanon 4, but they are finding some additional food sources. Samantha Wildman's baby is having a tough time getting sicker and weaker. Chakotay attempts and fails to start a fire, but has success only when Janeway and others donate some of their hair to use as kindling. When Neelix steps out to find more rocks, Kess follows, but in the night, she and he are quickly abducted by a fast, quiet humanoid. Act 2 Tom is still trying to get help from the Talaxians, but don't worry, he has a plan. Maybe. Back on Voyager, the EMH and Suter have a clandestine meeting about their situation. While the Doctor is motivated to do whatever it takes to take control away from the Kazon, Suter is reluctant, knowing that he may have to kill, and he doesn't know if he can. On Hanon 4, there are indeed other people, a primitive, seemingly aggressive group who have captured both Neelix and Kess. While Tuvok is prepared with weapons, Chakotay boldly approaches unarmed and softly modulates his voice. Even with the language barrier and the alien leader's attempt to uh, trade one of their women for Kess, the three walk away only to be chased by their captors. Waiting nearby are Tuvok and a few of Voyager's crew with weapons to fend off the aliens, but before they're overpowered, Chakotay and the rest take refuge in a cave, the same cave where Hogan was killed by a very large reptilian creature. Act 3. The Kazan crew on board Voyager are dealing with a warp engine issue and other malfunctions which quickly raise suspicions about sabotage. And they would be right. That puts the EMH and Suter on the defensive, but Suter knows how to throw them off at least for a little while by using a Thoron generator to scramble any tricorder readings. 
Back on Hat on 4, Janeway is concerned about Samantha Wildman's baby, the increasing seismic and volcanic activity, and the missing crew. She should be. They're all huddled up in that cave with the aliens trying to smoke them out. That leaves one path right past the giant, scary, but sleeping reptile creature. But outside, Janeway and some of the others are doing their best to create a distraction and lure the aliens away, opening up the cave entrance again. It's just in time as the creature has awakened and gives chase to the trapped crew. But on the way out, Tuvok and Chakotay seal the cave entrance by loosening rocks in the ceiling with their spears. Act 4. Suter has thrown off the Kazon on Voyager for a while, long enough for Tom Paris to get some instructions through to the EMH about the other systems to disable. But when Suter emerges from a conduit in sickbay, he's badly shaken. He had to kill a Kazon who is following him, and he's having trouble dealing with the weight of his actions. The doctor will hide the body in a stasis drawer. Majkala, meanwhile, receives news that one of Voyager's shuttles was destroyed. Maybe. There was one crewman, but that doesn't account for the other missing crewman on Voyager. With the search slowed down due to a Thoron particle leak, hey, wait a minute. Seska recognizes that old Maquis trick. She confronts the EMH, who is evasive, but points the finger at himself in order to give Suter cover. But Seska disables Voyager's computer and destroys the EMH projector on her way out to deal with a new problem, Talaxians firing on the ship. Catching up with Janeway and her crew, Tuvok is preparing for more attacks and suggests more weapons, but Janeway says they need to find a way to peacefully coexist with the aliens if they are indeed stranded here. Things worsen, though, as Wildman's baby takes a turn for the worse, and those volcanoes keep erupting nearby. Act 5. With the EMH gone and computers locked out, Suter is lucky to find that the doctor had left him a message, relaying what needs to be done to rescue Voyager from the Kazon. Suter raises his weapon and heads to engineering. On the bridge, Kala's crew chase the attacking Talaxians into a nebula, and that's just where Tom Paris wants them. Probably. Back on Hanon 4, both Voyager crew and local aliens alike are becoming victims of the environment and lava swirls in their respective paths. One alien, the woman who was presented to Chakotay earlier, gets separated from her group and stranded on a rock. Chakotay braves the lava to save her and thus forges a kind of peace with the locals. Akuchimoya, y'all. Paris, in his shuttle, starts opening fire on Voyager's phaser power couplers, and in engineering, Suter has had his moment. He opens fire on all the Kazon crew, making a path for himself to disable auxiliary weapons. It's his last act, though, as one remaining Kazon soldier musters the strength to fire his weapon and kills Suter. It was enough, though. As soon as Voyager attempts to fire on the shuttle— all systems overload, disabling the ship. It's the opening Tom needs to start beaming over a Talaxian boarding party to take control of the ship. The damage is extensive. Many Kazon crew don't make it, and while Kala and the baby survive, Seska does not. Kala gives the order to abandon ship and takes the baby with him. Tom does his best to get Voyager back, underway to rescue his stranded crewmates, he arrives just as that new peace with the aliens is growing. Their elder even helps baby Wildman back to health. 
but the sight of Voyager breaking through the atmosphere is welcome for Janeway and her team. Back aboard, they reactivate the EMH and hear of Suter's heroics. Tuvok memorializes his crewmate with a Vulcan prayer, and Chakotay pauses a moment to say goodbye to Seska. With the crew in command again, Voyager resumes its course to the Alpha Quadrant. The end. In the uh, in the tradition of what we do here in Mission Log, mm-hmm. we're going to look at some of the observations. As you know, John has done such an expert job in breaking down two episodes, two count them two, two, two. dose episodes, and uh, in probably one of the most remarkable lines I think I've heard in any of our breakdowns, John, and especially for many of yours. Akuchamoya, y'all. <laughs> that's it's going to be our new thing. Hey, by the way, not, not not to spoil it, right? But um, the the production felt emboldened by this enough that then Voyager is about to take off on a lot more two parters. So you and I, we got our work cut out for us, my, bro- my brother. Well, I mean, this is uh, yeah, yeah. We'll have to we'll have to file this away. You know, we don't want to overstay the welcome yeah. of that line, but. Every once in a while, it's going to make itself <laughs> its in appearance. So if you're playing the home game or want to make a T-shirt or a word bubble, mm-hmm. you might want to bookmark this phrase. There we go. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. Got to say, man, I, I mean, right from the top, I really appreciate that we just start out by bringing back Lon Suter. You know, mm-hmm. you and I talked a lot about that in the episode. Well, what happens to him? What, is he just hanging out in his room? So I love that there is follow-up that counts. Interesting that we have a discussion about two distinct species coming together to be a new one so soon after Tuvix. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Man, yeah. But, but honestly, I do like the foreshadowing here about Suter being someone new. Like all of this about being new, what happens with new influence? There's a lot going on, and and the, mm-hmm. that way that only Brad Dorf can bring because you're never really quite certain where you land with him from scene to yeah. scene because he's yeah. very duplicit. I think just in his demeanor, that's why yep. he's hired for these specific types of roles. I always thought it would have been neat though if he if it was his suggestion of isolating the orchid with the isotope for, to separate Tuvok and Neelix. Oh, so it's, it's funny. Wait, I wonder because that was a long period of time that we had Tuvix on board. Like mm-hmm. that was three months, I think, or something uh, like that. Something yeah. like that. Nine, nine weeks or something like that. So I wonder, did Tuvix go visit Lon Suter? And if he didn't, does Tuvok just show up and like, well, can you never believe what happened to me? Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sorry, I missed our appointment or like ten of them. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> I love how you repeatedly ask the question during the course of each act, well, do you think this is a trap? Because it's so obvious Come on. that it's Come a trap. On. And if Seska's breathing, it's a trap. It's a trap. Right? You just you don't even need Admiral Akbar to tell you it is. I have pinned this because I have literally many notes. Many okay. notes on that. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, Here's an interesting line. I wonder if it jumped out to you the way it did to me when Janeway says, I know I speak for the entire crew, Starfleet and Maquis alike. Yeah. Janeway, just you have one crew. Supposedly. It's the crew of Voyager. (laughs) All right. It's just the crew. Yeah. Yeah. We really wonder why we're still doing that. Let me just ask this, by the way, and this might be a thing that comes back. Chakotay needs to have a vision quest and ask his spirit father 
if it's the right or wrong thing to do to go help his infant son. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just, you know, he, he already talked to Janeway about it. He's already been morally kicking this around. Now he's got to go have another conversation to figure out. Okay. All right. Got it. It was interesting, though, that entire sequence because he was really pushing hard or nervously kind of like on the – I guess it's like you know the, the techno peyote that brings him into the dream state. <laughs> techno peyote. <laughs> yeah, yes. Is that our album yeah, for today? Yeah. Techno peyote. Uh-huh. It was pretty good. Yeah. But I like how he was lit. I like how Kolopak was lit in the dream sequence. You know, yeah. Um, trying to look for the positives like in this entire sequence. But I also like this line of dialogue where Kolopak says about – Chakotay's son. He knows nothing of deception. He is innocent. So there is something to be said about some of the dialogue that's been uh, introduced here and kind of like the moral of yep. this, right? That That is a thematic thing throughout. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Janeway <laughs> to the EMH. Your suggestions on any subject are always welcome. I, well, I mean, well then. Famous, yeah, <laughs> famous last words. I love that. I love that. Also in that same sequence, Bellana says, you know, we can't figure out how to project you into this room. Oh, uh, uh, maybe. Uh, no, but but yes, yes, yes. You, you can actually, Bellana. Yeah, <laughs> you can. I mean, look, I I know they're working on it, but they have all the projectors. They know what those are, right? Uh, okay, yeah. They literally yeah. described like how to project a hologram into space. Yeah, <laughs> but not into like an eight by ten room. Yeah, I know. I know. I, mm-hmm. I, and I know we'll get there. I yeah. know that we'll get there, folks. Save, save the emails. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, the idea of projecting 3D images of ships, or or may I refer you all back to the animated series with the Practical Joker, just carry along a gigantic inflatable Voyager. That's true. Maybe that'll solve your problem, you mm-hmm. know. Did you happen to notice, got a time code for you, 1759 tactical map, which has a different spelling of color has an A, C-U-L-L-A-H on the map rather than U-H as oh. it's usually spelled. Yeah. Eagle yeah. Eye. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah. There's a there's an interesting maybe improv, maybe not scene when Janeway mm-hmm. comes in and then uh, to to uh, Suter's room and then he's all nervous that, you know, she appeared. He went to go get a chair and then knocked over an entire table. And both he yes. and Tim, or I should say that Brad and Tim you know, they both yeah. kind of reorganized the table and stayed in character, and so did Kate. I'm wondering if that was a mistake, and they and just rolled that, with it. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, famously for a show like Star Trek that has no room for improvisation, that's one of those things that would have played perfectly if it was. Yeah. So nicely done there. Mm-hmm. Got to point out, Neelix delivers soup in a space terrain. Glad to see space. that. Yeah, very, very cool. And, and I know that we'll get into Suter's arc in more detail later, but um, I feel like the scene of Neelix delivering that soup almost a little wasted. Like, you talk about his duplicitous nature, uh, Suter's, you know, but did it feel like just an additional, like a distraction? Like, look how creepy he is. Look how unstable he is. But really, did we need it? I can I, I see what you're saying, and I agree up to mm. a point, but I also see that it comes right after he was kind of like dejected by Janeway, so he feels down, you know, like mm. he's yeah, yeah. you know he's okay. deflated. Like all of a sudden, he was like, "I just want to do something for the crew." Can't you see? I want to do something for the crew. I'm yeah. telegraphing and foreshadowing for the next episode that I want to do something for the crew. But she's like, mm, "I'm leaving because you're creeping yeah. me out." 
Yeah. Right? Okay. And he's like, <laughs> fair oh, enough. Fair enough. Too strong. Too soon. <laughs> Tuvok's like, yeah, <laughs> too, too soon. soon. Gave him the finger. He's like, too much. Too much. Uh, too much. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Get the the Tuvok finger. Yep. Yeah. Nobody wants that. I have to say, really nice job building the tension at the top of uh, in part one in mm-hmm. episode one, act four, right at the beginning of that act, when Voyager engages the Kazon fleet shades of wrath of khan like that submarine warfare feel and janeway just holding that tension wait 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 before firing so good really nicely directed here's where things start to take a weird turn for me because there's Mm -hmm. as an audience member i'm watching and listening to the dialogue and then all of a sudden chakotay's like well they keep firing on this one spot and then people keep saying they keep firing on this one spot and then harry's like Mm -hmm. these things got damaged and it's going to take you know a couple hours to from this one spot. And we got hit there again in that same spot. It's like you saying trap over and over again. I'm like, <laughs> you guys realize that you right. really should be running some kind of diagnostic on this one area that these yeah. primitive tactical strategists are firing on. It, it, it just have phasers ready and charged yeah. pointing there. Like, so why that, are they doing this? Know. Yeah. How about increased shields there? Yeah. I'm just like, yeah. you know, they're they're just a few very heavily telegraphed things that are happening in these two episodes. Yeah. I don't think they really need to be. Yeah, very true. Yeah. A very obvious line, Maj Kala, why is it so dark in here? Someone <laughs> turn on the lights. I gotta say, I mean, there is a lot of dark setting and dark lighting in this episode when you're on Voyager, but I really like it. I mean, Marvin Rush can play with those shadows sure. very nicely as he does there. Mm-hmm. And I love Kala's reaction. Like, if we got the Tuvok finger, now we've got the Kala hand. Oh my God. Kala's reaction when he is called out by Seska for checking on what happened to the missing shuttle is like, oh yeah, they, they, they blew it up. They destroyed it. And so, she's like, are you sure? And he just, uh, just raises the hand. It's so good. So, John, are you saying, hey, color hand man? Color. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for going that far to make that outdated a reference. I know. That was really nicely done. This is what I did. Yeah. That's why you brought good, me on. Good job. Right? Yep. Yep. So here's a, a technical question and a nitpick because it's a technical question. When when Kala takes off all the universal translators or the com badges mm-hmm. that are universal mm-hmm. translators, if they're gone, then how do the alien people like, say, Neelix and Kess talk to everyone else? Oh, wow. That is I didn't think about that. Like, wouldn't they That's revert good, yeah. into their native languages without sure. the universal translator? You would think. That's what I would you think. Would think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, have a timestamp for you. Cool. So, uh, basics, part one. This is timestamp. Mm-hmm. 42 minutes, 51 seconds. You got to love the land of the lost obligatory littered <laughs> shot from a cave. <laughs> yes. Right. Yep. Very well done. Mm-hmm. Very well done. And, and by the way, Neelix says when they get to the cave, yeah, it looks like a do not disturb sign. So, Neelix, why are you ordering <laughs> Hogan to hang out there? Yeah. Look, I mean, it, it's like Sala, you know, ass, very dangerous. You go first. Right. Like, it, it, no, just get out of there. <laughs> this is very dangerous right here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because there's usually a reason for, like, a pile of bones near a cave entrance. Yeah. Because that's what happens to people near the cave entrance. Yeah. Except yeah. if you were Baxter. I don't know. Where was Baxter the entire time? I- Oh, see, that's, I mean, dude could have built a shelter, knocked out the monster. Uh, that's, this episode is exactly short one Baxter. Right. They yeah. should, should call it Baxter parts one and two. They really should. 
Yeah. So there's a scene where they find Hogan's remains or his uniform, and then Chakotay mm-hmm. says, I know it sounds grisly, but I can make solar stills with the material from this uniform. We could have water tomorrow. What about the rest of the uniforms everyone's wearing? <laughs> I know. Right? You have, like, under tunics. Just take off a top yeah. or two. Exactly. You would have water stills right now. You could do that. Just I know. Saying. Yeah. Yeah. I do love the doctor's line. Uh, what, what are you supposed to do? Lead a revolt with the gang from Chez Sandrine. <laughs> that is a great <laughs> reference to the kind of internal mythology on Voyager. So very well done. I, I also, you know, I'm a doctor, not a counterinsurgent. Of course, right. Bob gets all the great lines he does. here. And uh, speaking of another great line, one hologram and one sociopath may not be a match for the Kazon, but we'll have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Uh, uh, Michael Pillar, if that was you, bless you. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm surprised somebody as smart as Seska wouldn't use like internal sensors to find every single person that may have possibly hidden in the crawl spaces of the ship, which is like the logical thing to do. Right. This isn't yeah. like a, oh my gosh, we should like do this because it's an interesting writing um, uh, contrivance. No, that's what you would do. You would try and find ways to get around visual scanning. But then she's yeah, like, but Seska's right. super smart. Yeah. She lays a lot of traps. Yeah. So yep. why not yeah. do that until, well, obviously the plot demands it, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I do kind of love the EMH and Suter watching from a monitor what's happening in engineering. So there are security cameras everywhere mm-hmm. that you can just tap into because, you know, sometimes there are. Sometimes there aren't. By the way, why didn't the EMH use a dermal regenerator on Suter? He, he's there in sickbay most of the time. Like, dude, you just clean him up a little. I'm sure he'd feel better. The doc was he, was, he was trying to plan his counterinsurgency. He was busy. He was. He was busy. Yeah, he was busy. About, uh, Jave Guevara. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of busy. So, or yeah. lack of yeah. being busy. So you have, mm-hmm. like, the Voyager crew, like, in a dark cave with no fire. So mm-hmm. is that what basics is about? Like getting back to the basics of actually the basic, like, you know, cooking and eating and doing all like, sure. the things from being like primitive and stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. All right. So they're hunting and gathering eggs and space cucumbers, right? So mm-hmm. this reminds mm-hmm. me of like, you don't know if those eggs are like edible or poisonous or whatnot, right? So it kind of like, know, is Harry but... Kim going to be like the, oh, let's see if this is going to kill us or not type yeah. of moment with this food. <laughs> He's the guinea pig, yeah. But here's here's like the cringe-worthiest scene I think I've ever seen in like all of Voyager so far. And this yeah. this has to do this doesn't even have to do with like the the Jamaki Hightower like Native American stuff. Yeah, Chakotay says, "I'm trapped on a barren planet. We're trapped on a barren planet, and you're stuck with uh-huh. the only Indian in the universe who can't start a fire by rubbing two sticks together." I, I'm like, yeah. And you yeah. called yourself an Indian. He's never called himself yeah. an Indian. Yeah, no, no. Right? That's um. It's always been yeah, like my people, that, or you know, mm-hmm, native tribe, mm-hmm. or the rubber tree, or whatever like that. But he's never called himself an actual quote unquote Indian. No, that stands out like a sore thumb. Yeah, yeah. Um, you might want to, and, and Neelix, great idea about using the rocks to radiate heat because that's what you would do. I mean, Sulu mm-hmm. should have done that in the naked now, you know, the naked time, <laughs> right? And yeah. uh, before his coffee. Do that in the daytime, Neelix. Don't do it at night when you're going to get abducted by Cro-Magnons. See? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, what did you think about Tuvok and his archery prowess that we've never heard of before? Oh, uh, I'm all for it. And in fact, that needs to be a special edition action figure. Right? That's, yeah. <laughs> it just does. <laughs> Shout out to uh, one of our friends, listeners, Dom. Tuvok mm-hmm. 
is better yep. in the D with archery. Tuvok archer. Yep. yep. <laughs> Speaking of archer, Chakotay said uh, he takes a bow and arrow off of Tuvok, and he says, this is very thoughtful of you, Tuvok, but my tribe never used bows and arrows, and I've never even shot one. Again, with a strange Indian reference. But Tuvok yeah. says, this is mine. <laughs> That was awesome. I taught archery science, archery science for several years at the Vulcan Institute of Defensive Arts. I didn't even know there was a Vulcan Institute of Defensive Arts. Is that like the dark arts? No. You know, like I, Hogwarts? I love it now. I, yeah, maybe it might be. I love it now, but I, I want a whole spinoff novel about the whole thing. I, I got to take us back to the Kazan here because, man, they, they are so inept. Like for laying this long game plan here, the trap that is so obviously a trap, they are so inept. It's weird that they've gotten as far as they have with – think about all the misreporting of what ships are destroyed, who is killed or captured. I mean, Kala has zero reliable source of information, and apparently he will believe anything you tell him. Right. So it, it is incredible that they could even figure out how to – get a ship into space and fly it anywhere without running it into the nearest sun. John, are you um, saying that these are the Kazon cops? <laughs> yeah. Another. A, another brilliant, outdated yep. reference. I applaud you, good sir. You, sir. Also, look, I, I'm really, I'm not necessarily buying the Thalaxian fleet. Like, maybe if we had built up over time that they were sworn enemies of the Kazon, that they were ready for battle, maybe, maybe then, but did you feel like it was maybe a little too deus ex machina? Yeah. They didn't really establish okay. that. A lot of that history with the Thalaxians would, like, sacrifice yeah. their own people and pull their resources because the Kazon did them dirty like this entire time. Now, maybe if it was the trade, yeah. I would have believed that. Yeah. Right? They're, oh, boy, that would have been interesting exactly. to bring back the trade so. with their uh, kind of difficult history. Right. Yeah. And that would have mm -hmm. led to maybe some further interesting storylines. We haven't jumped the timeline, so I don't know, but yeah. that would have been really interesting considering that that trade leader like saved Janeway from being annihilated on that planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, powerful scene. I mean, with all of kind of like the fun that we have with, you know, picking some mm -hmm. some of these scenes out, I really think that one of the most powerful scenes was towards the end of Basics Part 2 where Suter just collapses because he, uh, under the weight of his own morality or lack thereof, and he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. All Blake Picard does is just kind of like put his hand on his, on his shoulder or on his back mm -hmm. without really saying anything. I'm like, that that's just wonderful physical acting that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I do like I do like this entire conversation that was happening in Basics Part Two with like Tuvok saying like we're gonna have to like create weapons to defend ourselves against the natives, then Chicote is like, Well, wait a second, I don't believe that we need weapons, we need conversation, we need to talk to these people. And then, you know, there's a little bit of a back and forth struggle and things happen and then Voyager returns and then Chicote saves, you know, his uh future mate from being, you know, burned alive by lava, showing that there's like this rapport that can be made by doing things peacefully, gently, like the gentleman, quote unquote, that Chakotay is. If for anything, that scene or those scenes really did kind of return, I think, some of the discussion here to basic Star Trek. Yeah, I, I agree. And by the way, now that they're gone, uh, well, Tuvok probably should have stuck around to do a little Vulcan mind meld uh, memory erasing from those indigenous people. Uh, I'm just saying, because I got a lot to deal with now that they're gone. Tierna really has an outgoing personality. He just lights up the room and explodes onto the scene. Sorry, it's too soon again, isn't it?
We'll get back to basics <laughs> in a moment. <laughs> I know, but first, <laughs> a word from this week's sponsors, and we want to tell you about ExpressVPN. You know, John, I love watching Netflix. I think you like watching Netflix. Oh, sure. A, a, a number of streaming services, but that, that's kind of the, the granddaddy of them all. Well, I mean, like watching Netflix without ExpressVPN, it's like buying tickets to, well, your favorite concert or my favorite concert or maybe a Taylor Swift concert, mm. which is also one of my favorite concerts. I, yeah, that might be one of mine, too. Yeah, the tickets are pricey, but yeah, I'm not going to turn them down. And that's like buying those tickets, but only being able to, say, like watch the opening act. That's just rude. And that's it. Yeah, that's just right. rude. Who wants that? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, here's why that metaphor is so apt, because it's like you're paying for a streaming service, but you're only getting the opening act. You're only getting the tip of that proverbial iceberg, as it were. So you think about it this way, Netflix and uh, uh, Amazon and all these other streaming services, they all have content that is different in every country where they're aired. So, for example, Netflix by itself, it has thousands of shows, but without a VPN, you're only getting access to a fraction of that based on where you're watching. All right, so how does it work? Well, pretty straightforward, pretty simple. When you launch ExpressVPN, you get to tell Netflix or whatever other streaming service you're using where they should think that you're located. That's right, you're changing your location on your computer or your phone or your set-top streaming device to say, no, 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 I'm no longer here, I'm actually over there. And that is what opens up all of those region-coded uh, selections of content for you. Now, I use it with, well, I've tried out just about everything. And I have to say that one of my favorites is actually having access to BBC iPlayer. There's so much content there, historical content, cooking shows. I mean, you know me, you know that I happen to watch a lot of food-related shows. <laughs> and there are a lot of good ones <laughs> that I've accessed through BBC iPlayer as well as, well, Netflix and just about every other streaming service there is. I just open up the app. I select what country I'm watching from, and then I tap the button to connect. And before you know it, I am connected. I refresh my streamer, and there I am. Now, there's a competitive market out there for VPNs. So why do you want to choose ExpressVPN over, say, all of these other VPNs that are out there? Well, number one, you want blazing fast speeds with your VPN. You don't want to stream with a VPN and have choppy streaming or buffered streaming or streams that get delayed. You want streaming in HD with zero buffering. That's what you want. You also want it compatible with all your devices. We don't just use one. We use many. We use phones. We use laptops. We use smart TVs. Also, that can be used with ExpressVPN. So you want to be able to find those devices, use ExpressVPN with them without any issues. They also have servers in 94 different countries. 94 different countries. A lot of countries. That's a lot, right? Yeah. That's at least 94. <laughs> and ExpressVPN also works with other streaming services like BBC iPlayer, like John mentioned before, YouTube, and so many more. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash mission log to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free.
All right, Norman, there was something that I brought up in the observations, mm-hmm. and that was um, Chakotay's gut-wrenching decision here about whether to go after his child and help uh, rescue him and or Seska from Kala. There were questions about consent or or lack thereof on Chakotay's responsibility, which we could see as responsibility or not responsibility. Um, he says, how do you take a child into your heart who was forced upon you? And and honestly, I, I was I was a little surprised at how much of a dilemma this was for Chakotay, the mm-hmm. quote, gentle man. I understand that this is a two-parter. We have to take a little bit of time to build some of the layers into the drama and the conflicts that are going on. But I really wonder if this was the kind of thing that in another version of the script would just be Chakotay saying, that's my child and no matter what, I have to help. And I can understand Janeway if you don't want to risk the resources of our ship by doing that. But I would think that Chakotay would feel honor-bound to go there. He's already been there once, (laughs) you know. Um, What do you think? There was a really interesting uh, sequence of events that happened with when Chakotay first learned about this. They saw the buoy, they saw the message. Uh, But even he doubted uh, for a short period of time whether or not it was a trap, Mm -hmm. going after the child was the right thing to do, but not putting Voyager and Voyager's crew in the lives of all of these innocent crew members, his crew, at stake. I'm surprised Janeway, she kind of like deliberated on on his behalf to do the right thing. I'm not saying that it's not the right thing to do to go after a child. Yeah. But I'm surprised that she was so, you know, proactive about – making that decision for him and saying like, no, we have to do this, even if we're going to risk like the entirety of our crew and our mission to go back home. I think it was actually really bold. And I know that Star Trek, sometimes we use Star Trek, you know, as a way to, to fit what's happening in the world today in the narrative of Star Trek, whether it's from the past or, or the present and obviously in current Star Trek, but this was 1996 that this was happening. And the, I guess the debate that he was having with Kolopak about whether or not he wants to take this child of his, whether it is or not, into his heart because of Kolopak's story about like how people, the women of his tribe or women of their culture were raped, you know, and uh, violated. And then they took those children into their hearts. That's very yeah. much a very significant, very important topic for today. And I do not want to say this lightly at all. You know, I just don't mm-hmm. have the wherewithal to speak more than what I'm going to say right now. And the yeah. point is that children born of rape or non-consent is so, it's so debated right now, just in politics and morality and ethical conversations. Yeah. And I found it refreshing that a story from almost 25 years ago is having that kind of relevancy right now. Mm. With And especially with the father side of the equation, you know, not the mother side of the equation. Yeah. So that's, again, like I said, I don't want to take that lightly. I don't want to like be glib about that. I'm just trying to make a connection between that story point and what's happening today. No, no, I, I I got what you're saying. And, um, I, I, I think I, I was surprised that it was a conversation that they kept having to have in the context of the show. Mm-hmm. Because I, I would think that even if Chakotay had doubts, those would be very short-lived doubts. That that the doubt would be more about endangering Voyager, not about his moral obligation. Um, 
because it, look, it, this is a uh, an episode or a couple of episodes here that are full of stories of redemption, and it seems like if anybody would get it that hey, this is an innocent, and this is somebody who could grow up to be better than the circumstance that he's in now, it would be Chakotay to figure that out on his own. But so that's the, the the vision quest was a little weird to me that he had to get that additional. I, like I, I I think it's fine to have Cola back back mm-hmm. and have that moment as well. But I'm surprised at what led up to it. But can I bring up one of my biggest points of contention that that sure, that discussion leads into this episode and, and into my mm-hmm. parts of the discussion of this episode? Mm-hmm. So I want to like quote something very specific here because John, again, in your recap, you kept bringing this point up over and over and over again because it was so incredibly obvious, you know, from a writing standpoint Mm. and from maybe a narrative funneling standpoint that we were supposed to see. So Chakotay says, this is earlier on. Chakotay says, do you think that it's a trap? And Janeway says, do I think (laughs) Seska is capable of manipulating you and me with this? Oh, yes. So you know it's a trap. And yet you choose to do this anyway. Like, you know, I know that there are bigger decisions being made behind the scenes, crafting this story. But when you present something so obvious like this, even to the point where your main characters are like, yep, I know it's a trap, but we're going to risk everything and not not getting back home and risking the lives of innocent crew members because this baby who may or may not be yours is in danger. Right. Okay. so I hate to use the word hate. In my recaps, (laughs) Uh but I hate when people know they're walking into a trap and choose to go forward with their plan anyway, because other people now are put at risk for the sheer act of defiance of doing what they're doing, knowing that it's a trap to begin with. But is this a moment where the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many? Uh, James Kirk stole the starship, endangered his career, endangered the lives of his friends to go help the one person, even when he wasn't supposed to do that, even though, even though he knew that he was facing the end of his career and, uh, it, you know, who knows what other punishments he was going to get. Here's a situation where you take this one innocent life. And in this particular case, by the way, I'm going to get to this in just a second, but in this particular case, believed to be Chakotay's child, he has no reason to think that he isn't. Is that worth it, particularly if he's got the backup of his captain? I would say that there's a compromise. I think there's a a middle ground that can be made here. Take a strike team. You know, take a strike Mm -hmm. team to go do that. I mean, shoot, Tom on his own infiltrated Seska's ship. Get a couple of like really smart people and go there and just figure it out for yourself. All you need is a DNA sample or go forget, go get the baby. The thing is with Kirk doing it for Spock is like that's a 30-year career. That's a lifetime of achievements that's shared between these two men. And that's the, Isn't my life worth his career or isn't my career worth his life? This is a baby that they may or may not know is actually Chakotay's. I get it. Like mm. I know people, you want to send the emails like, how dare you say that because it's an innocent life? I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that Janeway and Chakotay know for a fact that Seska has laid a trap for them. Chakotay knows that this or may may or may not be his baby because she said in previous episodes that it may have been Kala's baby. You know, so we we know that as an audience member. So why risk everybody? When you can only have yeah. to risk a few, the needs of the few, those few, Chakotay, maybe Tuvok, maybe Tom, maybe Harry, you know, just send a strike team in to figure it out, to see if it's real. And then if it is, then go for it, you know, like send the, coal, the canary in the coal mine, but don't send the yeah. entire miners. 
right? <laughs> yeah. I, I do want to bring up something very important here about changing plot points because there, there are a few key things here that Michael Piller originally wrote and Jerry Taylor and Rick Berman really push back against. So first of all, the baby would have not survived the episode. Originally, the way the script was written, the baby didn't make it. Yep. And here's the other really important thing. It was always intended to be Chakotay's baby until literally a couple of days before they filmed those scenes where, you know, the EMH reveals that this is part Cardassian, part Kazan. And by the way, just side note here, that's why it's a little unfair for us, for me and you as a host, to get comments from listeners saying, well, well, why do you believe it's Chakotay? Okay, well, because at the time it was. like This was originally written, originally intended from the introduction of that plot thread to be Chakotay's. This was literally an 11th hour decision to change it. Right. right? And we can't argue what we haven't seen In the course exactly. of Mission Logs reviews. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, but, but that is one major, major thing. By the way, Seska would have lived in the original script, and Lon Suter would have lived in the original script. Interesting. Now, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, I can say that um, I think that uh, killing off Seska, I think that was the right decision. I think... I would say killing off Lon Suter, I think allowing him to end his arc of redemption, also the right decision. So let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Is Lon Suter redeemed? Let's say that he did everything that he did here in this episode, but he lived. How would the rest of the crew treat him? What would be the obligation to him? Is it easier to deal with him now because he's gone? You know, I, I mean, think about it. We we have this guy who is confined to quarters. All he wants to do is do something for the crew. Mm-hmm. And here's this extreme circumstance where he gets to do that thing, leave his quarters, go be the hero, do it for all the right reasons, even though it anguished him. It absolutely pained him to do what he did. Let's say he survives. The rest of the crew comes back and they go, oh, yeah, but he's still the sociopathic killer. He just needs to go back in his quarters. Well, this goes into like the, um, you know, the, the, the tried and true action adventure movie genre of, okay, we're going to, we know who you are, Dirty Dozen. We're going to let you out because you have mm-hmm. very specific skill sets that we need. But once those are, once our goals have been achieved, we're going to put you back in because we can't leave, let you roam like decent society, the, mm-hmm. the kind of people mm-hmm. that you are. You know, it's kind of like the Suicide Squad. There, there, there are conditions that need to be met. You know, for these people to be able to operate because they have a specific goal. You know, uh, like Liam Neeson says in Take, you know, I have this specific set of skills that need to be, you know, that that I can employ, you know, in, in the mm-hmm. pursuit of uh, being able to achieve my goals to get my daughter back. Well, once Suter's done, you know, once Suter takes the ship back, you know, after mm-hmm. the doctor like kind of like pushes him to re-embrace like those specific skills – what does that do to Suter? Right? Maybe because yeah. like that's yeah. the thing. Like Suter was on his Can way to redemption. He Can he survive? Can that, he? Right? Yeah. Because yeah. he he's good at what he does. You know, and yeah. now with Tuvok's mental discipline, maybe he can compartmentalize those sociopathic tendencies even further. Hmm. Right? So now he's a very well disciplined, very or- mentally organized sociopath. Hmm. 
So that is that still the guy that you want exactly. next to you at work? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the methods of survival here, because I thought that was another interesting thread in this episode. Um, so, <laughs> so I, we have many different players to connect the dots here. You have the, you know, violent through violent confrontation. You we we have. Tuvok. Well, we have Tuvok just ready to build and aim weapons because that is the logical thing to do. And it's the first thing that he sees to do, which is interesting. And I wonder if this is just making a distinction with Tuvok versus other Vulcans that we've encountered in Star Trek. Uh, You know, the peaceful, meditating Spock sitting in his room quietly and every now and then using a Vulcan nerve pinch. But here's Tuvok, who we say in this, went to that defense academy. I love (laughs) and ready to make weapons. Right. And here's Tuvok seeing the anguish that Suter goes through. And we as the audience get to see the anguish that Suter goes through, even contemplating a violent action. All right. And then we see survival through cooperation. And that's Chakotay, the gentle man again, who mm-hmm. says, no, 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 here's how we need to approach the situation. And I think with Janeway, we have a little bit of a balance of both. They arrive at Hanon 4, and she's the one who agrees, like, yeah, we, we need survival. We need weapons. We need this. But then she's the one who says, no, 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 I think a little bit less of that to Tuvok is, is okay. And then we had the EMH telling Suter, if Lieutenant Tuvok were here, I know he would tell you that there are times when violence is required to defend yourself, to defend your ship, to defend your crew. Totally. And you contrast that with what's, you know, going on with Tuvok's approach on the planet, honestly being the wrong choice in contrast to Chakotay. And I kind of have to respect the story in handling that, okay, these can both be the right choice based on the circumstance, based on the the environment that has brought you to those decisions. Mm -hmm. We don't know. You know, we don't know if it's necessarily the wrong choice, you know, in contrast Mm -hmm. to Chakotay. It's just that the narrative, it kind of absolves like uh, any other choice aside from Chakotay's being kind of like the wrong one versus the right one. Tuvok is Mm -hmm. just being prepared. There's nothing wrong with being prepared. It's not like he's creating arrows and like, let's go create a hunting party and like wipe out these Cro-Magnon species from this planet so that we can retain Mm -hmm. dominance. He's just like, I'm being practical because that's what I do. I'm Starfleet security and I'm tactical. So I'm going to create a defensible position. Not an offensible position, yeah. a defensible position. But Chakotay is like, well, let's talk first. I'm like, okay, that's great. This is Star Trek, right? This is kind mm-hmm. of like going back to like a private little war, right? You know, mm-hmm. where either you arm mm-hmm. and continue the arms race with people, either yourselves or your, or your enemies. Your enemies now become your allies. Or you talk it out. You compromise and try and find a solution peacefully, right? Now, the contrivance of the end of this episode is that Chakotay saves the person that he was, you know, the, the, the primitive that he was supposed to be betrothed to, which creates an alliance between them. And you saw that mm-hmm. furthered on with Samantha Wildman's daughter, you know, getting the medicine from the chief, all that. That's great. But, you know, let's take a look at it from a non-narrative standpoint. What if that didn't happen? What if they said, hey, you know what? The Starfleet crew is a threat to who we are and, and, and our lifestyle. We're going to attack. So if Tuvok isn't prepared, what happens? It's his job. That's literally his job. Sure. Right? Yeah. So it's wonderful to see them both at odds, but it's nice in the Star Trek vernacular to be able to see that 
you know, communication and a peaceful negotiation wins the day. Got caissons clogging up your whole ship? Call Rotosuter and clear them out in a jiffy. That one was also too soon, wasn't it? Well, we've basically reached the end. There's only one thing left to do with our two-parter about basics, and that is to see if the whole thing holds up and see if we learned anything from our rewatch. So, Norman, in the tradition, I'll ask you here to go first and tell us, uh, does the episode hold up for you? Does it telegraph what I'm going to say when I ask our audience to take a deep breath before I say what I'm going to say? <laughs> it no, might. I've already said it, so. It might. They, they okay. already know what's coming. Deep breath. Okay. Um, yeah. And I'm going to try and be okay. constructively critical and positive and at the same time, because I do think that there are some things that are worthy about talking about in these episodes. But I think that Basics 1 and 2 essentially could have been like a really tight single episode, focusing mm-hmm. more on, say, like Lon Suter and, yeah, tying up like the loose ends with the Kazon storyline. But there's just so much fat and padding in these two episodes. And it's, it, for yeah. me, it kind of like... It kind of like dilutes both episodes uh, from the really good concentrated story that I think they could have told. And not for really any good reason. There's a lot like a lot of that filler is just filler. And I think it's maybe because they had the mandate of season finale, season opener, because that's what these two episodes are. I mean, it's it's nice. It's fun to see and learn about like some of the details with the crew, like. Obviously, it's awesome that Tuvok is a master archer and he practiced and studied archery science at the <laughs> Vulcan Defense Academy of the Dark Arts, which was yeah, awesome. Yeah, he did. Um, Torres yeah. being a decathlete and, and Ayala, too, because that's pretty much like the only detail from like Lieutenant Ayala that we've learned. Mm-hmm. These are great scenes, sure, but they're padding, right? You can, you're not really going to change like the narrative if you don't learn about these particular skill sets. So. I think that, again, if you really wanted to focus in a, a very like singular and, and very entertaining and engaging story, you can cut a lot of this padding out. I'm glad that this entire Kazon storyline is done. And, and I can't be a hypocrite about this. I really wanted the Kazon to work. I thought they were interesting at first. I thought hmm. that uh, at the very beginning, you know, they weren't as... They weren't like reduced down to like these kind of like tropish reactions, like you know, Seska uh, forcing Kulla into all of these eye-rolling misogynistic behavioral traits, right? Yeah, I think that right, up until right. this episode, I think that Kulla actually had a lot of incredible layers to him. I thought he was interesting to watch, and all of a sudden, he's just kind of like the, you know, the, the handcuffed or the the ball and chained male yeah. in this relationship, which was too bad because I think yeah. that. Anthony DeLongis, who I love, and, and he's a personal friend of mine, I thought he he brought a really interesting look to Kulla. And Martha Hackett, I can't like sing enough praises for her originally as Seska. But mm-hmm. now, again, both of them mm-hmm. have been reduced to kind of like these very tropish, like Boris Badenov and Natasha type of archetypes, you know, where they're just doing the schemes. But they're so obvious right. that I can't believe that our intelligence and sophisticated Starfleet crews actually falling for these schemes. So I'm glad that that's being kind of phased out. And you can tell that these storylines are being phased out. There is a very yeah. clear and yeah. present cleaving of and housekeeping that's going yeah. on here. But in the tradition of what we do, John, like does this episode or mm-hmm. these two episodes withstand the test of time? I have to begrudgingly say yes, because... Hmm. They're they're not two specific episodes or two hours worth of 
Star Trek entertainment that don't matter. Of course, they do matter. They just don't really feel worthy like of some of the better two-parters that we've seen like in the course of Star Trek history. Uh, best of both worlds probably being the highest watermark of those. And uh, sure. we don't know what's going to sure. come because you know we still have, uh, I think, yeah. several other two-parters that are going to be in the future for us. But oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that overall, there are great moments in these two-part in this two-part uh, episode that could have been boiled down into one great episode. But there are really good moments that you can discuss that I think are the saving throw. You know that um, that allows to have this conversation. Still, I wouldn't dismiss them, and I wouldn't not recommend them. I just don't really place them highly in the in the scope of a season finale and a season premiere. Okay, I I think I'm going to be similar to you, but a little bit different. I mean, look, I, I'm glad to be done with the Seska story, and and I assume we're done with the Kazon too. I get the need to have some sort of internal story consistency, and they thought in creating Voyager, well, we need to have a big bad that can follow us uh, across multiple episodes. So from a storytelling point of view, I get the impulse to do that. So it's not just Planet of the Week every week, and then you really are making Next Gen. But I feel like that attempt is kind of half-baked, and it went down a path that felt weird. It felt very much like a soap opera. And I think that's what you're hitting on when you're talking about the changes in the Kazon character in general and Kala specifically, and then Seska, who we met and who she became later on in their interactions. Contrast that, say, with Deep Space Nine, where there are definitely some soap opera elements on the station itself and with characters that we spent a long time with, but the conflicts and the big bad felt much more complex, more political, and felt like they had much more gravitas. And that's, you know, hats off to them for being able to develop that over multiple seasons and really make those layers pay off by the end. Here, it's like they started with the layers, they started with some ideas, but they couldn't quite hang their hats on where they should go with the Kazon or Seska. And then you're just kind of saddled with these characters, you know, all right, we, we have to be done with them. And that's what we're seeing here. Like you said, it's like we're definitely drawing the line in where we're done with these characters. Now, does it hold up from a production point of view? It's a little bit of a mixed bag because I think there's a lot to like about these two episodes when it comes to the ambition behind them. We've got a lot of space battle sequences. I really love, like I said, that cinematography on Voyager itself. When we're getting into those battles. I think it looks great. I love location shooting. I like the idea. We, I think we've had more extras, more Voyager crew people than we've ever seen before. That was nice to place. see. I got to admit, rarely. that was very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, we rarely get that much, you know. But at the same time, it it is just through no fault of its own kind of dated. You know, those shots of Voyager coming in for a landing on a planet, they're always a little bit janky. Uh, the creature, the, the CGI, also a little janky. The shots of uh, compositing the lava flows on our, you know, Alabama hills in the <laughs> Angeles National Forest. It, it's not quite right it, it doesn't quite line up and those things can take you out of it from a modern point of view looking back at this episode 
I will say that on a rewatch, on a couple of rewatches for what we do here, first time around, I just thought, like, this is taking too long. I want to just, can we get to the end here? couple of rewatches later, and I appreciated the things that I liked about this more than I thought I would. It felt early on like, you know, we're spending entirely too much time on Hanon 4. We're spending entirely too much time with these indigenous people with the bad makeup. Yeah. <laughs> but, but when I went back for the repeat viewings, I was much more keyed into The Doctor, to Lon Suter, to Tuvok and Chakotay when they're at their best – to Janeway as a leader, like these are the things that stood out to me. So I think it still, it does hold up as a slice of the larger Voyager mythos. It stands up as a way to look at these characters. We're going to talk about morals, meanings, messages here in just a second, see if whether that can maybe help elevate this. Do we get something out of it? I think this episode is better than good. It's it's better than just barely a passing grade, partly because of the ambition behind it, partly because, look, they delivered some good action scenes, too. And I think if we're just looking at, like, character moments and do we get earned moments, I got to say that, like, with Lon Suter, very much some great moments yeah. out of him with a guy we've only met once yeah. before. So those things elevate this episode. And where I understand that you're you're kind of sitting there in the middle on this one, it's like grudgingly, well, it has to hold up because it has to be part of this overall storyline. I think I take it like just a point further and go like, yeah, it does those things, but we can also get a little bit more out of it too. Speaking mm. of getting more out of it, what about those morals meanings? Well, there's a, a famous quote that most Star Trek fans know. This comes from Scotty from Star Trek Three. After he sabotaged mm-hmm. the Excelsior, he said, "The more they overthink the plumbing, the easier it is to stop up the drain." <laughs> so, where am I going with this? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, there's uh, you know when when you play the home game, there's something that John and I do, and it's also the title game, and you're wondering why that they titled both of these episodes like Basics Part One and Two. Maybe the moral of the story, at least from what I got, maybe the moral is not to be so reliant on technology and remember how to think and act for yourselves. Voyager is the series so far of Technobabble, and you hear a lot of the characters rely on tricorder this or censor that or make sure that all of these technological feats allow us to be able to do what we need to do. Now, I understand that they're on a starship. I understand they're in the Delta Quadrant. I understand that they need this technology to survive. But at the same time, though, you don't need it in order to communicate and connect with other people. You don't need that to make sure that Mm -hmm. you maintain relationships with your fellow officers because if you look at it from a real, like a real world standpoint, how many times have, uh, say, John, you or I or anyone out there listening to this or in the sound of our voices have stood in line for anything, for a concert or to get into a restaurant or to get into a movie or to get your car from a valet, and everyone is staring at a screen. Nobody is mm. talking to each other, yeah. not even in the passage of time that it takes just to do a one to two minute chore or act or you know get your groceries or get to your car or wait for something maybe that's and i know that that's not necessarily the point of basics maybe back in 1996 with none of this existed but i'm watching it from the context of where i am now and maybe this is the disconnect with what happens with too much technology 
Too much dependence of technology on technology prevents us from thinking for ourselves. I mean, think about again today, most of us are very dependent on what our technology allows us to achieve knowledge, like instant gratification, communications. This is something that Cullah actually revered about technology, you know, and he actually, mm -hmm. uh, he, he blamed Janeway for squandering and not sharing. He even said to her, like, this is what happens when you don't share technology with other species, especially us. But is yeah. that necessarily a good or a bad thing? I mean, think about what we do. As soon as we can't figure out something, we go to our phone or we go to our watch, we go to our computer, hit Google, and it tells us exactly what we need to know. We don't even retain it. We just need to know it for that specific reason to either remember something that we should have and exercise our memory or to defeat somebody in an argument or go online and have an incredibly ridiculous amount of single-sided discourse, right? All of this is because we're dependent mm. on technology. So it was funny watching the crew not do basic things like start a fire, talk to each other, figure out some yeah. basic human solving, uh, problem solving because... What happens when you're too like uh, too dependent on technology in order to do just that, just to do the basic, simple things that humans are supposed to do? That's kind of what got yeah. Well, I think if I had to sum it, I mean, I think what you're saying is that the problem is plain to see: too much technology, machines to save our lives, machines dehumanize. <laughs> I this is this is see, I, I bring up like. 30-year-old, like, commercial references. John brings the knowledge. Mm -hmm. He brings the noise, the music, the lyrics, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's what I so, um, But that's, that's kind of like what I get out of it. You know, you just can't lean on it too much. Obviously, there's a happy medium between all of this, you know, but, um, you know, like when in the industrial age, when it changed uh, everything, you know, people still, you still need to know how to shoe a horse. You still need to know how to change an oil filter. You need, still need to know how to pump gas. You know, you still need to know how to, you know, write in cursive. None of these things actually apply yeah. anymore, right? But when, when they right. do, what do you do? Right. Yeah, I, I think uh, definitely going from the, the title, the, that theme is absolutely there. The other thing that I touched on a bit in our the earlier part of our discussion here is I feel like there's this great through line in this episode about redemption and second chances. And when it hits, it hits really well in this. We get to see that play out with the crew on Hanon 4 dealing with the indigenous people there and uh, uh, that decision to yeah, we can prepare, we can have weapons, we can uh, uh, protect ourselves in that way, but we also have to make a decision to not rely on that. We have to make a decision that we're going to coexist peacefully and go to great lengths to make that known to those people. I think that was really nice to see. There is, there is an opportunity of circumstance as well. And, you know, the innocent in all of this is that baby, whether he was Chicote's or not, as we learn later on, that's the one who has the opportunity to not grow up in that terrible environment led by the late Seska and now by Majkala. And who knows what will happen to that baby in the future. Imagine what would have happened if the baby had survived and stayed on Voyager instead. Could have been a whole different outcome there. But really, I think the most fascinating story here is Suter's. I think dramatically his story plays out 
beautifully. But I think also it shows that given, again, the right environment, the right encouragement, and the right resources, that nobody is too far beyond redemption. And it took somebody thoughtful and caring like Tuvok to give him those resources and to help. It would have been a very different show had Lon Suter lived and we try to revisit him <laughs> episodes to come for the next however many years. I think they made the right decision for the script in this episode. And uh, seeing that kind of redemption story play out in an episode like this, I think elevated the dramatic heights and also elevated the thematic heights of what we can take out of it. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, flashback. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. That was basics, that's it, I say next time, we go with Fortran instead. Transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.